Amen. Okay, singers, thank you so much. We should be so grateful, and I hope we are, of the worship team, the worship leaders that we have here that week in and week out, yeah, it's amazing, week in and week out, they come out, they lead our thoughts, they, they, uh, they uh, encourage us through, through music. It's, uh, it's great, so thank you for those guys. Second Corinthians chapter 3, we'll get there in just a moment. Today is Father's Day, as you already know that. I know that because I'm a dad, and uh, if you have a dad or if you are a dad, you are aware of that. And so because it's Father's Day, it really seems only right that we talk about fathers, right? So Mother's Day, a few weeks ago, we looked at Mary, and we looked at her relationship with Jesus. And so today we're going to take a look at God as our Father and his relationship with us. Uh, one of the most common names, titles given to God is Father. And you really see that throughout the Bible. But what is a father? Think about that. Well, you might say, well, the father is a male parent. That's true. And for the most part, any healthy male of a certain age can, be, can father a child, can be that technical father. But to have any depth of meaning, it's got to go beyond that. To be a good father, there's got to be an emotional connection. Going way beyond the physical, into the realm of that, you know, that closeness. And it's not just creating a life, but it's really nurturing and it's developing that life. And this is where God, as our Father, really shines. Now, take a look at the scripture. Kofi, can you make sure I'm uh, connected there? Thank you. All right. They're working on it, <laughs> I'm sure. Okay, I think you got it now. There we go. Yeah, you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. And I really like this image of us being a, a lump of clay. Now, you may be offended by that. Don't call me a lump of clay. But in the grand scheme of God's creation and God's power and God's glory and God's might, we really are just that little clump of clay. You think about all that God has done. And it was really God's intention from the beginning that he would be that potter, that he would take your life, that he would mold it and he would create it into something great. You see this scripture right here in Jeremiah chapter 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then of the, the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. And if you notice what's happening here, the potter is working at the wheel and creating something. But then after a while, the potter notices that there's a problem. And what he was working on was now marred. There were some imperfections. In the Hebrew, this word for marred is shakath. It literally means to be spoiled or to be corrupted or going to ruin. In other words, it was not going to end well. 
for this pot. There was no way to just kind of fix it. And so the potter makes a decision to reform it into something better as seems best to him. Now, this was written at a time when Israel was in a very, very bad place. They were disconnected. They were disobedient. They were rebellious. They were completely estranged from God. And God was desperately, as a good father, trying to pull them back in and pull them back in and get them to to really be obedient, to be that family again. And so God addresses all this disobedience and this rebellion. And there was a plan that if the people repented and they refocused, that God would, would accept them back again, that they would be once again reunited, they would be closed again. So this is early in Jeremiah. A lot of us are familiar with the Jeremiah 29 scripture, right, where it says that, you know, God has a plan for us and, and God has, has hope for us and will prosper us and, and take care of us. And he's got these dreams for us. And so that actually was brought out from what we see here earlier, that there was this estrangement. And God always had a plan that we'd be back together again. And I believe what we see here is God not only making a promise to these Israelites that if you repent, if things change, then I'm going to reform you into something great. But I think it's a promise that also extends to us. That we, marred by sin, the corruption of the world, destined for ruin in our sinful states, can be reformed and be reshaped into something better, as seems best by God. And that's really where Jesus comes in. We see the scripture, I love this one, in Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is our call to be molded like clay into something better, into the likeness of Christ. And as a potter, which God is, he's always forming two things in us. We're going to take a look at those right now. The first is a soft heart. Of all the things that make you, you, the heart is the most important I know we look at ourselves and you say, well, no, I'm, a, I'm an artist. My hands are most important. Or maybe Riley would say, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a runner. My feet, my legs are most important. We, we all have those, those things that we think because of what we do, that they are the most important. But really, from a physiological perspective, I think your heart is probably the most important. Because when it goes, you go with it. And it's so important That God strategically put it right in the middle of your body where it's afforded the most protection. Besides pumping blood through everything else to make all those things work, we also consider the heart as the center of our emotions. Right? And so when we're talking about things that we want to do, we say, my heart was really in it. Or maybe if it's something that you didn't want to do, you say, my heart wasn't in it. Or if there's something really important that we want to learn, what do we often say? I'm going to learn it by heart. I'm going to memorize it by heart. So in other words, there's a deep connection with those things that we are really strong about. The subject of the heart is addressed in the Bible more than any other topic. More than sin, more than service, more than obedience, more than belief, even more than worship. 
And the reason is that all of these things get their, get their value, get their meaning from the heart being in the right place. And so if the heart's not in the right place, you can worship all you want. You can pray all you want. You can, you can try to deal with sin all you want. You can do all the things that we know to be right and good all you want. But if your heart is not engaged, they're going to come to nothing and you'll very quickly give them up. So that heart is so important. When the heart is in the right place, everything else typically follows suit. God is big on the heart. And God is big on protecting the heart. But Satan is also really big on the heart. Not in protecting it, but in destroying it. And Satan knows that if he can deaden and disable your heart, then he can effectively foil the plan of God. Because Satan, being very smart, knows that if I can just disengage the heart, they can spin their wheels all they want. They're not going to go anywhere. And so let me attack the heart. And that's typically where he goes. He goes right for the things that really affect your heart the most. We are created to follow God with our hearts. And everything else is built around that. So by taking out your heart, the enemy really and effectively takes you out. But that doesn't have to happen. We have to see our hearts the way God sees them. And value our hearts the way God values our hearts. And mature through them. There are two voices that ring in your ears every single day. One is from God and one is from Satan. We have to see our hearts and listen to the voice that God is, is shouting to us. There, many, there may be many mouthpieces in terms of where, how these voices come into us. But there's only two voices. And it's imperative that you listen to the right voice. One voice says, you're a mess. Your heart is bad. You're bad. And you'll never be any different. That one is not from God. Don't listen to that voice. That's the one that Satan is trying to just, you know, scream at you every day. There's another voice that says, you were a mess, but I've made you clean. And I've removed that broken, damaged heart, and I've given you a new one along with my spirit. And I'm with you now, and you're with me, and things are going to be okay. That's the voice you want to listen to. Now, look with me over in 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to begin here in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. To show you that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Well, the Corinthians were struggling in their faith quite a bit. I mean, read all through these letters and you really get that sense. And I think they were beginning to lose some of that heart that God had given them. 
And so he takes an opportunity to remind them of what they have by reminding them of what the Jews missed. And even though God had promised them a new heart, and you'll find this, don't look now, but you'll find this in Ezekiel 36. There was a promise that I'm going to give you a new heart. Their failure to grow and to mature caused them to have heart failure. They were in full-blown spiritual cardiac arrest. And it was not working. And they missed the paradigm shift that to be right with God, we need to get our hearts right and we need to get our hearts aligned with Jesus. That's the plan. They missed Christ. There was a different ministry going on now. It was away from the legalism of the law and more toward the freedom of the Spirit of Christ. The new covenant was a transformation, a total rebirth. And that was going to be centered on the heart, not on tablets of stone. And it was going to be a glorious, far better than anything they'd ever seen. Now you go on in verse 7. Now if the ministry that brought death, which is engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold, we're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It's not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. And even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Those who were following the law were missing it badly. And there was a veil that was covering their hearts. And so those, ho- those hearts were no longer being moved or impacted or inspired or motivated. They weren't growing. They weren't maturing. The heart may have been replaced, but it wasn't functioning well. How well is your new heart functioning? Because when you became a Christian, God gave you a new heart. You took the old one out. You went under surgery, spiritual surgery. You got that new heart. How is it doing? How would you even know? You know by your level of engagement. Because, again, those things that we're really interested in that we really want to do, we put our whole heart into. And so now you look at your level of engagement. How is your level of engagement with your relationship with God? And that's all the things that we know to do, whether it's your prayer time, whether it's your time studying the Word. Is it just like, you know, i got to check in and check out? Or do you look at your time in the Word, your time in prayer, and say, you know what? This is the most important 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is in your day. Because this is the time when I create with the Creator, when I connect with the Creator. How important is that time to you? Because your level of engagement is probably a pretty good indicator of where your heart is. Look at your engagement with the fellowship. With the body, what's it like there? If it's, again, just to check in and check out, that's an indication that maybe I'm beginning to lose heart. 
Now, if you can look at your relationship with God, whether it's through your prayer, through your Bible study, through your service, if you can look at your engagement with the body, whether it's how deeply you're involved in the relationships, the fact that when the church meets, whether it's midweek or Sunday or family group, I'm going to be there for sure, no doubt. You can look at that and say, if that's strong, my guess is your heart's probably in a good place. Because you'd find a million reasons to not be there if you didn't want to be there. Now, we go on a little further in verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And this literally gets to the heart of transformation. And it begins with an unveiling of your heart. God, I want you to see it for what it is. I'm not going to try to cover it. I want you to see who I am, where I am, where I'm at, where I'm going. It's taking off everything that's preventing your good heart that God gave you from fully functioning. So if you feel like, man, I'm just not there, I'm not engaged, I'm not, you know, my, my heart's just not in it. You really need to just stop and say, let me figure out why. What is covering my heart right now? Is it worry? Is it stress? Is it bitterness? Is it anger? Is it apathy? What, whatever it is, you know what it is. Whatever it is, and you've got to slowly peel those things away. So that heart that God gave you, that good heart, can beat strong and shine once again. How is that heart? Take off everything that's preventing it from fully functioning. God so much wants you to have a healthy spiritual heart. With that heart, then he can continue to form you and shape you into the image and the likeness of Christ. The other thing that God's always working on is a sharp mind. Look at me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, we need to have our hearts engaged the way that Jesus did. Because your heart is where your passion is found. It prompts us to act. But there is something that prompts your heart. And it's your mind. Input comes into our mind, through our eyes, through our ears. We witness life around us. And we take it all in. And we take in so much. And the mind processes all the things that are coming in, all that input. And it sends a message to your heart, and it tells us how we feel about things. Here's what's important. Here's what's not important. Here's what I need to worry about. Here's what I don't need to worry about. Here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I shouldn't be afraid of. Here's where I'm secure. Here's where I'm confident. Here's the things that cause me to not be very confident and not secure. And so that, that mind of yours is so important. How we think about things is so important because where we set our minds is ultimately where your heart is going to lead you. And that's where your actions are. Now, if you're a Christian, not just in name, 
But if you've really taken on the likeness of Christ, you have a distinct advantage over anybody who is not. Doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. But there's something that you have. Maybe it's not fully developed that they don't have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to read one verse, and then we're going to go back to the beginning in just a moment. In verse 16, Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So what does it mean that you've got the mind of Christ? Does that mean that you have the, the intellect of Christ? Does that mean you have the perception of Christ? Does that mean you have the intelligence of Christ? There's something we have. Because Paul said we have the mind of Christ. What is that? You know, we sometimes measure how capable a person is by their IQ. And we do that by giving somebody a standardized test. And it tells us how smart they are. And by that we can determine their potential. They have an IQ of this, this, this. Therefore, they've got great potential. And by that we can guess of how successful we think they're going to be. But is that a good measurement? Can we really gauge success by intellect? Because how many really smart people have said and done some really foolish things? Now, all you have to do is look through your social media and you will see a plethora of really smart people who have paid the huge, a huge price for being really foolish. So what is missing from our smarts? It's wisdom. How is that measured? Is there a test for wisdom? There is. But it's measured over time. It's how you do in the long run. It's how things work out. Paul says that we have the mind of Christ. How does that work? Well, there's some good news and some bad news. The bad news is the mind of Christ might not make you any smarter. And so, kids, study the Bible, but stay in school. Okay? You've got to do that. But the mind of Christ, I believe, will make you a lot wiser. And wisdom is all about making right choices and right decisions. Now, look at 1 Corinthians 2, beginning with me in verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. And my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, it's very interesting for Paul to say this, because if there was ever anybody that could boast about how smart he was, it would be the Apostle Paul. He was very well educated, trained by the best teachers of the day. And so people would look at him and say, but you're a genius, what are you talking about? But he didn't come to impress them. With his intellect. He came to them with the only thing that's going to have any lasting value in your life. 
And that's a demonstration of the Spirit's power in his life through the cross. He said, look, I could, I could share with you, and he probably could have rattled off all of the teachings of the Old Testament. But he didn't. He said, I know one thing, the power of the cross and how that works in my life. I love the video that we saw earlier. You know, here's a guy that was ready to just fight tooth and nail, but he was right. He took a look at the cross. He said, I can't argue with that. I'm done. End of game. And that's so true. Let me tell you, when you really get the cross, there's no more arguing. I mean, it's just futile. It's, just, it's, it's, it's stupidity. So Paul says, you know what? I'm not going to talk about all the things I know, and he knew a lot, but I am going to talk about the thing that really matters. And that's the wisdom that I have in life. The way that God has sharpened my mind through the cross. I may not be smarter than I was prior to the cross, but I'm a whole lot wiser than I was now because of the cross. The cross is an amazing thing in your life. There's two things that we get when we understand the cross. We get them both at baptism. Forgiveness, a clean slate. And then you get the indwelling measure of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That you've got a piece of God that lives with you. And that's an amazing thing because that's the part of God that molds and shapes you. You think, well, I'm molded and shaped when I read the Bible. Not necessarily. A lot of people read the Bible and it doesn't mold and shape them. You know what molds and shapes you? It's that power of the cross. And then you read the Bible and then that works together. You can't just say, I'm going to read the Bible and, and, and be molded and shaped by Christ. You've got to have something that's working deep inside. And that molding process opens up your mind to clear thinking and clear decision making. And that's where your mind becomes sharper. In verse 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit teaches all things, even the deep things of God. Now, I became a Christian in 1985, not knowing anything about my future. But I did know the kind of life I wanted to lead, the kind of marriage I wanted to have, the kind of family, the kind of ministry, the kind of life. And it's far from, far from perfect. But God has given me those things, not because of anything I am, but because of that spirit that lives in me. He goes on a little further. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. So that we may understand what God has freely given us. 
And this is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. A person without the Spirit does not accept these things. They consider them foolish, and they can't understand them, because they're discerned only through the Spirit. A person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. God has given us an amazing opportunity to soften our hearts and to sharpen our minds. And along the way, we're going to have plenty of challenges and plenty of problems. But the good news is we have answers and we have solutions, and we have hope. Because as Christians, God is molding within us a softer heart and a sharper mind. And God does all that because He's an amazing, amazing, and good, good Father. Yeah. Mm-hmm.